0: Hello there and thanks so much for supporting the Music Career Show. My aim with this podcast is to help as many people as I can turn their passion for music into a career that can support them and their family by speaking to people who have actually done it and finding out how they've done it. With this in mind, I have developed my Music Career Roadmap. This is a fully comprehensive and detailed step-by-step guide of how you can go from dreaming about your ideal career to actually implementing and living that dream. It is yours to download for free and can be found in the description of this episode. If you would like any support at any stage of your music career, you can reach out to me via email at barry at oneladmusic.com. I wish you all the best of luck and I hope you enjoy this week's episode of the Music Career Show. Welcome to the Music Career Show, telling you the stories of the world's best professional musicians. Hello there, and welcome to the Music Career Show. My name is Barry and every week I'll be speaking with incredible musicians from all over the world about how they've honed their craft and made a career out of doing what they love the most. If you're a new listener, then while you still have your device in your hand, please take a second to subscribe and tell your friends all about The Music Career Show. Hello there everybody and welcome back to The Music Career Show. Just in case you're new here, hello there. My name is Barry and every week I dive into the secrets of building a successful career in music with amazing musicians and music professionals from every sector imaginable. My aim is to get you inspired with real life stories and learn from industry insiders so that you can make music work for you. So while you still have your device in your hand, would you ever mind subscribing, reviewing and sharing the podcast far and wide to unlock your potential as a professional musician and help me share the love as far and wide as possible. And if you are perhaps a musician stuck in a nine to five lifestyle, then don't miss out on my free music teacher roadmap. This is a step-by-step guide of the exact steps that I took to build my business and make music work for me. And you're going to find that in the description of this episode. Or alternatively, you can head over to onelabmusic.com forward slash roadmap. Now that we've all that out of the way, on this week's episode, we have a lovely lady all the way from the US of A. She describes herself as a child of the 60s whose father was a civil rights activist from the deep south and whose professional accreditations include but are by no means limited to demoing with John Lennon's band, singing for Kid Creole and repeatedly charting in the folk charts over there in the States. She's a lovely lady and her name is Brooksy Wells. Hello, Brooksy.
1: Hello, how are you? It's so nice to chat with you.
0: It's lovely to have you on, Brooksy. It's absolutely fantastic to be talking to you again. So... Brooksy, for people that may not have heard of you just yet, uh, why don't you introduce yourself, tell us who you are and what you do.
1: Okay, I'm Brooksy Wells. I'm a singer-songwriter and I live in Atlanta, Georgia. I was born here in Atlanta, but I spent most of my life up north uh, in New York and Virginia, actually, where I had my early career. I was signed by, of all people, Bobby Darren back in the day and uh, worked at Warner Chapel as a songwriter. Then um, was lucky enough to be part of the first album for Kid Creel and the Coconuts for some of you Brits over there. Remember that band? They were pretty popular over here in um, America, but much more popular over in England. And um, then I left the music business and became a children's musician because I had kids. And you can't nurse and rock at the same time real easily. (laughs) So uh, I ended up... um, getting out of the music business. And I didn't really like the business part of it all that much. There's a lot we can talk about, about how rough it was in the old days for women. Absolutely. But um, yeah, I came back uh, about 15 years ago, I was getting a divorce and I said, and I don't mean this literally, so don't watch the comments. I could either kill myself, buy a new car or make a record. So I decided to make a record and I called in friends from the old days. I had uh, Ricky Simpkins who plays for Emmylou Harris, I had Larry Williams, who was Algaro's Ranger, and Julian McBrown, who works with Lisa McCormick. They all came down and they helped me make this kind of country record. Ended up getting nominated for an award, a Washington Area Music Award. And I said, well, guess I'm back in the business. But I didn't understand the business. Mm-hmm. The business had changed. The business had turned into streaming. It had turned a wave, Even then, CDs, I did make CDs, but now nobody has CDs in their car anymore. You can't hardly sell a CD. So mm-hmm. I didn't know what to do. And also the genres had changed mm-hmm. because in the old days, someone like Linda Ronstadt was considered like a folk rock artist. Now, you know, there's folk Americana and there's pop and I didn't really know where I fit. So mm-hmm. I kept looking for help and I found it. And this wonderful woman, Carrie Estrin, who manages my radio career, um, I found her in Nashville, and she helped me to adjust my direction musically so that I would fit into a genre, which was the folk genre. Mm -hmm. And she said, if you do certain things, you can get a top 10 record on the folk charts. And guess what? First time out, this is, I think, 2015. I had my uh, first um, album with her. It was... um, Came in at number 10 on the folk charts. Mm. And then I did, I know. And then I did another album and it came in at number seven. And then I did my most recent album, which is called Stops Time. I actually have it. This is it. And very good. Um, yeah, it was number four. So I've had three top 10 albums in my 60s. So a trifecta. So that was very exciting
0: fantastic stuff that's all excellent it's funny you should say that when you came back to the uh, the industry after however many years you were away from it that had totally changed I feel like that even though I I speak about it on the podcast quite often that I done sound engineering coming straight out of school so I was like 17 17 18 19 I stud, studied sound engineering and within six months I would say everything that I had learned well not everything but pretty much uh the industry had moved on that 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 quickly and that far, the things that I had learned six months previous were already out of date. So I can imagine how much of a, a culture shock it must have been for you coming back in after however many years away. Um, but yeah, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into all of that. But let's rewind a little bit. I always start by asking people after they've introduced themselves, where did music all start for you?
1: Well, I was five when I started playing piano and I studied classical piano. So I I studied and trained um, until I was in about the 6th grade, I guess maybe 7th grade. Uh okay. then I switched to guitar. My father brought me a guitar from Mexico, you know, uh, just up uh, and I started playing. And there was a place in Alexandria, Virginia um called the the Folklore Center and um mm-hmm. this friend of mine got me a guitar, uh gave me a Gibson J50 which is uh Ooh. from 1960. I know it very oh, yeah.
0: very well. Yeah. And-
1: <laughs> yeah, very cool guitar, but has a skinny yeah. neck because it's got a real big body, but it's got a skinny yeah. neck. And yeah. I was I was 15 when I got it. And he said, you need this more than me. I think he got it for like a bag of pot back in the 60s. You know, this is this was uh, I mean, it's <laughs> the old days. I can just tell you what actually happened. Yeah. So I've been playing that guitar my whole life. And when I was when my son was about 10, he goes, Mom, when I'm 21, can I have that guitar? And I, Oh, of course, my son, because, you know, you do that with your kids and yeah. he held me to it he held me to it so he now has the gibson and i'm playing a couple other i play a martin uh not actually i um, not anymore i'm playing uh, a gs mini now because it's a touring guitar for me it's a uh yeah. guitar so I, I i had
0: a gs mini many many moons ago they were, they were a lovely guitar they're a lovely Yeah, lovely and guitar it's guitar. coal wood yeah. this
1: one's coal wood so it's really got yeah. a nice tone i used it recorded with it it was pretty fun Lovely so anyway, that. that's how I got started in music was I played classical piano and I still teach classical piano to beginners. I'm not a great player, but I'm good at teaching little kids how to start playing piano. So that's what I that's do.
0: That's great. That, that, that's absolutely wonderful. And so you were you, you switched to, to guitar after playing for playing piano for a while. Can you remember how, how you found that? Because me as a guitar player. Primarily, I play a load of different instruments, but I'm a guitar player, first and foremost. And you know yourself, if you can play a piano, if you can play a guitar, you can play a load of different instruments. But uh, I'm a guitar player, first and foremost. And for me, trying to play a piano, it's like it's backwards because you're, you're, your hands are doing the opposite things. On guitar, you're doing most of the melody on your left hand, whereas in piano, it's total opposite. So I, I, could, I can never get my head around piano. Can you remember how you found it?
1: Well, it really wasn't a problem for me because it's two different things. Classically, hmm trained piano players which is what i was when i was young it's about reading the music having your hands follow the reading it's like learning to read with guitar i was taught and i was not taught uh as a classical guitar player i was just i was taught some chords i was taught you know here's a g chord here's a c chord i did learn things like numbers one four and Mm. five You know, I also learned, you know, like, like the circle of fifths and stuff like that, although I really wasn't very well versed in that. So basically I learned the chords and I learned how to finger pick. I am a finger picker. I am not a flat picker. I don't flat pick. Uh, I wish I did, but I don't. So, um, I spent my, the summer of my 15th year in a basement in Concord, Massachusetts, playing a Travis pick for three months to learn how to do it, which is thumb, oh, hold on, thumb, 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 finger, thumb, finger. That's basically what I learned to play, and I just very spent good. the summer in the basement learning how to do that, and I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> so that's how I did it.
0: Fair play. So you said this is this is something that I've always, and I'm sure a very quick Google search would 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 tell me this, but I'd be as well asking you, what does the term classically trained mean, as opposed to like. Oh, what? Any any other type of, of of lessons?
1: Well, I think what it, what it really means is learning how to read music. Okay. I mean, I think that's that would be the um, and and not and and note for note read music. Mm. Um, learn and plus learning a language that is for all the people who do it. For example, terms like legato, staccato, yeah. piano, yeah, yeah. forte those are the kinds of things that if you're playing guitar and somebody hands you a chord chart and it says C G F sharp minor D you know and that's yeah. it and you're just and you are improvising i mm. think it's it's very it's the difference is one is a written piece another is more improvisational where you where you create more improvisationally that's been and i consider two very different skill sets oh, because they, when i played classical you, yeah i i I can't sit down and write a chart note for note of the music that i play that i create that i write on guitar or i also write on piano it's very different i just sort of come up with stuff and i'll hire somebody to write (laughs) write it down note for note i can't do it it's two different things so that's that would be my take on it and i i believe that um you know, jazz I mean jazz players also when you read their charts, they're so hard, you know, it's it's oh, very complex work. Yeah. And I, some I, people I, can just play it without it. You yeah, know, but I'm not yeah. one
0: of those people. No, I I follow um Rick Beato um on YouTube and it, it's like I I teach music theory. To an extent. Do you know what I mean? I teach music theory and I, I try to impart as much wisdom about music theory to, to my students as possible. But then when you go and watch something like Rick Beato, you feel about that big and you feel stupid for not knowing that a C sharp can have a sharp because it's in Stairway to Heaven in a certain place. <laughs> it makes no sense. And then he sits there and he he, he kind of charts out things as if he was in a jazz band. And like you are saying, all the, they have like added sharp thirteens, and you're like, Right. Grand, okay, perfect. I just do that. Do you know what I mean? I, I just play a G and I'm happy. But um, yeah, good <laughs> well, stuff. you
1: play a G. You play a G and you add a sixth, or you, because you're just doing a walk, and you yeah, don't yeah. think about it though that you're adding a sixth or adding a thirteenth. You're just oh, I'm walking down. You don't. Yeah. It's some of it is a language issue. So if yeah. you're if you're a, an improvisational band type musician. You're going to use, and I played in a lot of bluegrass with a lot of bluegrass players, mm-hmm. and they play in G position all the time and use a capo. Yeah. yeah, yeah, A lot of musicians are like, "Oh, you're cheating," and I'm like, "Oh no, I'm not. I sing in B no. flat, and I don't like to play in B flat. I like to play in G, so I just capo third fret, and I'm good to go.
0: You're and good that, to go.
1: You know." We're- yeah, that works out for me. Yeah.
0: So Why why would you bother learning all the different uh, positions when you can literally just use a capo? My bandmate is is notorious for that. He knows how to play four chords, and that's him, and he just uses a capo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's him, he's happy out. Be well, and it tradition. depends on
1: what you're trying to do, yeah, because and who you're working with. Because, yeah. you know, I the other night I got to play with some really fine jazz musicians. Um, Neil Starkey was playing bass, and it was incredible. They were backing me up. And I, you know, but I don't have to tell them anything. They can just play. But some people are just really, really talented. And those are the yeah. top people. And God bless me. I got to play with some of them. It's been very exciting. I am a noted songwriter, not a noted yeah. player. Right. <laughs> you know, Under, I, I don't know. So it's a different thing. It's a different set yeah. of, of tools and a different set of stuff. I yeah. would love to be as good a player as some of the players that I've had the honor to work with, but I'm yeah. not.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would love to be half as good as half of the people that I, I, I've, I've been honored to work with as well. And like, like you say, when, when you're working with someone that is infinitely better than you, and I don't mean that in the, in the crass way that it sounds, but it, you might as well call a spade a spade. When you're working with someone that is infinitely better than you, it makes your job very, very easy. Very, exactly. very easy. Some of the easiest gigs I've ever done were with uh, musicians that were much better than me. haley Keenan is is one of them. She's She actually works for, for, for my music school. She's a uh, a fiddle teacher and a fiddle player and she used to be in a band called Talix, Talisk. Some of the easiest gigs I've ever done were with hard playing fiddle. Uh, Dan O'Sullivan is another one that I used to gig with in America. Fantastic musician, so yeah. But um, cool, right, so... You were playing away in school. You, 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 were, you were learning piano. Then you'd switch to learning guitar and you spent that summer, three months of the summer, learning how to. Was it Travis Pick? Is that what you said? Travis Pick? With yeah, the,
1: that's what it's called. The Travis Pick. And <laughs>
0: then, so I know Bobby Darren came into the picture. Now, for anyone that, that doesn't know who Bobby Darren is, now I was kind of one of these. I knew the name Bobby Darren, but I wasn't entirely sure why. And Brooks, you can maybe correct me if I'm wrong. But Bobby Darren, was he not the guy splish, splash, and taking a bat? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So and for, also uh,
1: Mac the Knife Mac the Knife was one of Mac his the big knife. hits
0: Great stuff, so yep. for anyone, for the anyone out there like, like, like me that was just born too late That's what we're talking about When did he come on the go, uh, Brooksy And what happened?
1: Well, uh, Bobby Darin was a big star In the late 50s, early 60s He was part of the Rat Pack With Frank Sinatra and those guys He was a bit younger And uh, he was like the, the y- younger brother Of the Rat Pack and um he was uh doing mostly like vegas and that kind of you know copacabana new york stuff like that but he wanted to be a folk singer he loved bob dylan he loved folk music and so he did a cover of if i were a carpenter which is a 1960s you know folk song that was a big thing with joan Baez and stuff he loved that stuff but he was kind of connected and you know take that however you like Uh, And so they wanted him, his management and everybody wanted him to stay in the um, uh, more the Vegas type playing, you know, the big clubs, that kind of thing. So he had a publishing company and um, his publisher, that's who signed me, was his publishing company that he wanted to have folk singers. And um, so I was 19 when I got signed. I went to Hofstra University on Long Island in New York, right outside the city. And I was 16 when I went to college. And I was just playing guitar oh. in my dorm and some guy heard me. They used to have A&R people would go around and look for people. And they said, oh, you want to wow. make a record? And I said, sure. Went downtown, um, you know, played a little demo thing. I brought some boys up from Virginia who'd played with me to do a demo or two. And then um, I got signed. And um, they did. But in those days, that's what I wanted to talk about. Women were not allowed to do anything. I mean, they picked my clothes. They picked, like, John Lennon's band, Elephant's Memory. I used mm-hmm. them. They, this is who you're using for your backup band for the demos. Okay. You know, I, and I acquiesced because I was young and, you know, I didn't know. And my first adventure in the music business, I'm at the studio. There's two engineers, both with little gray ponytails pulled back. And the first words out of their mouth was, oh, your father got money? Mm. And then, who's your boyfriend? There was never a question of me having talent. It was, I had to, and I was very cute when I was young. So it was just, I must've been a cute girl that somebody was doing a favor for. Yeah. It wasn't, I couldn't have been talented. Oh my God. But, um, you know, one thing led to another and I ended up getting signed by Bobby Darren. And um, things were, I did my debut at Gertie's Folk City, which is where Bob Dylan made his debut. And I oh. got a backup band and things were really going great. And Bobby Darren had the nerve to die, he was oh, 30, inconsiderate the, of him. Yeah, he was thirty-six. He had had rheumatic fever as a child, and his heart gave out, and he died. Uh, yeah. So nothing you could do. And in those days, without a mentor, women just—you didn't—you were done. And yeah. so I had a contract for three years, and I stayed, and I started. That's when I did Kid Creole's album. We did that in the studio upstairs. We had an in-house recording studio at Chapel Music. In those days, that no one had a home studio. There was no such thing, okay? It hadn't yeah. been created yet. So yeah. all of the big people in New York did demos. They did, um, like, Paul Schaefer from the David Letterman Band and Lionel um, Hampton, James Brown. I mean, anybody would come in and do a demo or fix things on their records, and you would meet everyone at Chapel because Chapel was the largest publisher in the world. So I got yeah. to meet, for example... Um, Alan J. Lerner, he wrote My Fair Lady. I got to meet oh. him and, and ask him what his favorite song was that he ever wrote. And he said, um, On the Street Where You Live from My Fair Lady, which was like, you know, because ah, I was a kid when all those things came out. I was so excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I was very lucky and surrounded by some of the best. I mean, the Brecker brothers would come and make demos there. I mean, everybody. And I thought all musicians were really good. Because there I am, surrounded by the best musicians in the world, and thinking, "Oh, this is the way it is," yeah. and um, it was interesting. So anyway, I, I I ended up doing the Kid Creole album, but it was really insane in New York. I was um, not really happy anymore. I had gotten a divorce. I was, you know, um, there was a lot of alcohol and drugs back then. You know, it was that period, the seventies. If you ever yeah. saw that show, Vinyl, which um, Mick Jagger. Uh, produced a lot of people went oh that's over the top and all of us were calling each other going that's exactly what it was like you yeah. know so it was it was pretty rough so i ended up leaving new york and going back to virginia where my parents were my father was a unitarian minister in rest in virginia and i went home and you know it was pretty insane and i ended up getting in a band because what else are you going to do and, Stop um, death. we got in the band and ended up marrying my drummer <laughs> and having two children. And we made an album over in Athens, Greece, when it went overseas thinking, you know, it's all going to be amazing. And of course we ran out of money and came back. Um, and my ex-husband became an air traffic controller, thank God. So someone could pay for the orthodonture. And I had two children and I, um, decided to do children's music for many years. And I was in Montessori and, you know, was an artist in residence at a Montessori school, worked with little guys for a long time. And, Very but cool. um, uh, Yeah, it was pretty cool. And, and by the way, I've been sober 35 years, so I also stopped drinking and drugging and all that stuff, which is why I'm this healthy at my age. You know, I gave it up way... Oh, was that 19...
0: Was. Eight? No, that can't be right. Eight, 1988. 87. 87. 87. 87, So going on 36 years this year.
1: Yeah. Well, I just, Go yeah, 35 uh, years in October. Years
0: 35 years Absolutely. in October. Well, congratulations. October. That's, that, that is no mean feat. So fair play yeah. to you. Um, <laughs> I know that you, you, you were talking an awful lot there about um, Chaplin... Uh, Chapel Warner was it Chapel Warner or just Chapel? Mm-hmm. At the um, time, it
1: was Chapel. It was Unisong Music was the was the division I was involved with, and it was Chapel Warner and Chapel got together later. So it, at the at the time, it was Chapel music. So okay, grand.
0: Yeah, no, I I knew there was there was something ringing ringing a bell in my head when 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 you kind of mentioned Chapel Warner, I was like, I've definitely heard yeah. that. Like being mentioned, yeah. uh, like about like Van Halen or something like that. But um, oh yeah, so, they uh, they,
1: had, they have everybody. They're you know yeah. they publish on all the big bands and all the all the they had they had publishing for the Beatles distribution. They had you know everybody, and it was very easy to get lost in a publisher that big. That's another thing that happened to me was without Bobby Darren to promote me, I was just one of a very small fish in an extremely big pond. And that yeah. did, you know, I, I had a couple songs and movies and stuff, writing with other people and that sort of thing, but I was not getting the help that I needed to be elevated to the level of a Stevie Nicks or a Linda Ronstadt, which is what yeah. you need. You need, some, you need that backing back then, you know, to promote your albums, to do your tours, to do all that stuff, because all of your money came from album sales back then. They, yeah, it didn't yeah. come from touring. You toured to support the album, not the other way around. And today, it's all touring and streaming's free, basically. You know, so yeah, it's a yeah. um, very yeah. different industry.
0: And I can imagine that you wouldn't have been the only one then to fall through the cracks when you've got the likes of The Beatles on your roster or Van Halen or whoever else are these other huge megastars.
1: Yeah, without question. I mean, I mean, there were and there were lots of us super talented folk. And we were working. I mean, the thing is yeah. we were working musicians, which is a great, I mean, that's hard enough, you know, not exactly, everybody's yes. going to be at the top, you know, so that's hard enough. But yeah, we we were working musicians and um, I've been a working musician since I was 19. Now, some of it's songwriting, some of it's performing out, although I was not much of a touring artist. I did tour a little bit, but mm. um it was mostly recording. I did backgrounds on disco records. I was a disco singer.
0: <laughs> that's that, that's much <laughs> my my only ever experience with disco was when Kiss did that that album Dynasty or Dynasty. I don't know how you pronounce it, uh, uh-huh. but uh, <laughs> that's that's class. But I um, I I I know that you were you were a writer for um, Chappell Music at one at one stage. What did that entail?
1: Well, that was why I was. That's what my uh, contract was. That they're a publishing company. They they hired me as a songwriter. And so what I was there to do was write songs for myself, for my own you know, music, but also to write songs for other people and to work with other ah. artists to, um, you know, get songs published. I, I wrote with this duo, these two classical musicians, as a matter of fact, Mark and Alec Piskinoff, they, we want to write pop music. And so they, uh, I wrote the lyrics for a song called It's the Night Again for a movie with, uh, and Samantha Sang covered it anyway. And that got in a movie. And I made a bunch of money on that, which was a lot of fun to make a little bit of money um, yeah. for a song that I had in a movie. And um, so that, that was kind of um, learning. You know, I wrote with some various, oh, Larry Russell. Um, he just sent me some songs I wrote that in a long time ago. Uh, he played for uh, Billy Joel. He is in Billy Joel's band and uh, we've nice. worked together. So wrote with a bunch of different people. And Jerry Holland, who uh, he ended up having a song of the year in uh, Nashville many years later for um, John Michael Montgomery. And he and I wrote together uh, Freddie Caruso. So and we had a band and we'd play in the village. And uh, that was a lot of fun. We would play at these clubs, you know, at the Vanguard, places like that where you would just go and get to open for people or play. And it was it was my 20s were a lot of fun, you know, because I I was in New York City. I lived in the West Village. You know, we were all mad and crazy and um, just, it was insane. So it was fun.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that, that sounds brilliant. You've touched on a, on a good point there, which is, uh, uh, and this might actually sort of be helpful. I know be, I, I'm really interested to know about this, and I think it might be helpful for other people listening out there. So when I had said about you, you were, you were a writer for Chapel Music, I didn't realize that you were speaking about getting signed to Chapel. And all that. And that, that was basically the um the sort of the, the details of you getting signed. Am I right in saying that?
1: Well, no um I was they heard me play, they yeah. they heard my songs. I, I had um I came in, I did some demos, and yeah. then um the Bobby Darren's publisher, this guy, Mr. Burton, was in charge of all the publishing for Bobby and he mm-hmm. Played it for Bobby, and he said, "Sign her." So they signed me. It was a three-year contract mm-hmm. to, as a songwriter, basically. Right. And, but they yeah. were going. They were also promoting my career as a singer. So it was like a, 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 at the time, it was that they wanted me to write songs and perform. So you know, they they brought in a publicist and they brought in all this you know stuff. Of, you know, we got photographs done, and I they hired a backup band, and you know, I have pictures on this album here. There's a photo shoot on the front that was done back then when I was, when they were getting ready to, you know, put me on, on an album cover and stuff. So this is, this album is called stops time. The man with the camera stops time. So my friend, no. David Goodman, who's still a wonderful photographer and has a new book out about marijuana as of all things. But anyway, uh, he did those photos. So that's the kind of thing they were doing for me at the time. Yes. And um, so when, when, when Bobby died, basically all that stopped.
0: Okay, grand. Yeah, no, that, 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 that was the, the, the point that I, I was wanting to touch on then because then that sort of, and I, I, I think I kind of know the, the answer to it, but then, so if, if they're sort of essentially, for lack of a better term, they're implying you as a songwriter, meaning that if you write songs for yourself, the songs don't necessarily belong to you. If you write songs for right. you, you, if you, you write a song, you could perform it, or Stevie Nicks could perform it, or Paul McCartney could perform it, but none of you own the song. It's the the publishing company that owns the song. You've well, just written you, it on you, you their behalf. You hold the
1: writer's rights and the publisher. No, no, no. You hold the writer's rights and the publisher owns the publishing. It's split. Oh, okay. It's still split like that today. The publisher owns right. the publishing, the writers own the writer's rights. That's because a lot of people did a lot of work to keep it from in the 50s. It used to be they would buy the songs outright and would just own them. Yes, that was true in the 50s and early 60s, um, but that changed. And so you have publishing rights and writer's rights, 100%. And it's, it's weird how, how the numbers go and everything, but, um, you retain writer's rights and then the publisher gets the publishing rights. Now you can make a deal and give away some of the publishing, keep some of the publishing. It depends on the situation. Um, you know, if you're working with a more famous writer or a more famous artist, they're probably going to get a bigger piece. And so Mm. that's just the way that works. And you, you know, what I always talk about, it always makes me laugh. Um, Cutting up the invisible pie. Mm. Everybody's always trying to cut up a pie that doesn't exist, okay? If you haven't got, you know, you're writing a song, and 99% of the songs don't get covered, don't get released. Some do, but, you know, and now with with the internet, you can put it out yourself, yes, which is great, whole difference. But back in the day, you know, most songs didn't make it. And so you're, but you're all worried about your publishing and worried about who's going to steal it and all this stuff. And I'm like, I wish I wrote a song that was big enough that somebody wanted to steal it. You know, wouldn't that be yeah. great? You know, I wish I could, you know, I want someone to steal my song. That'd be awesome. Steal my song, yeah. you know, so I would get some sort of notoriety. But, um, yeah, you know, it's mostly just do the work, do the art and don't expect to make any money. I mean, that's just the key. And once you yeah. get over that and you look for other ways to make a little money now that we don't can't sell CDs anymore or sell records yeah. the way we did in the old days, then you figure out other ways to make money and you keep making art one way or the other. I've been making art my whole life. I can't worry too much about whether you're going to buy it, you know,
0: <laughs> I mean, potters that, that's don't right. worry about them. which
1: potters or painters. I mean, painters don't make any money. I mean, until they're dead. You know, we are artists just like a painting artist. And and so, you know, and the the recording industry is only 150 years old or something, like they invented recording. So, you know, you've always had to have patrons of the arts, people that support art, God bless them. You know, I have cousins that, you know, have been successful and they'll let, you know, give me money to help me go make a record. I mean, because I yeah. spend a lot of money making records. Because I yeah. make records that compete with Emmylou Harris and Rodney Crowell and whoever else is in the Americana field, and it has to look that good and it has to sound that good, so I hire the best, and yeah. it's cost me almost all my retirement money. <laughs> you You're know, fortunate. so yes. Yeah. Just-
0: yeah, yeah, Well no, that that's great. That we've got, we've kind of cleared that up because I think there there's an awful lot of like almost like kind of black magic and kind of smoke and mirrors and all this. Or oh, is it this way? Is it that way? You hear all these different stories of bands firing their published publicist or firing their manager or doing this and doing that and doing the other, and all of it just getting jumbled up into one big mishmash, and no one really knows which way is up as far as all that is concerned. I certainly didn't and 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 still don't for for, for the most part but uh, I'm glad I'm glad that I've 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 gotten a little bit of clarity on that and hopefully I've I've cleared that up for some aspiring singer songwriters or artists out there that you know know the difference between writers rights and publishers rights and all that kind of jazz if I've said that right but um you so fast it. forward then uh-huh. I said that right fantastic I'm learning every day is a school there Brooksy. so you fast forward then a little bit, that kind of, you you done your, your whole bit. Kid Creole and the Coconuts. Tell us about them.
1: Okay, Kid Creole, August Arnell um, was in a band originally called, um, uh, let's see, what, it was Tommy and Stony Browder, and they were the Dr. Buzzard's original Savannah band. And uh, he no went to school with, with me, uh, Kid Creole, and I went to Hofstra. And that's where I met him. And my friend, Julian McBrown, who ended up being the house engineer at chapel, um, August Arnell, or Kid Creole, as they call him. And, uh, he wanted to make a record. And so we made it actually the first record we made most of the tracks at night at chapel, you know, after hours, that was where the original record was made. And it was because I was working there, got my friend to be the in-house engineer. Nobody was there at night. We would come in and make the record. And, um he was working, like I said, he had already had a deal with, uh, Dr. Buzzard's original Savannah band with his brother, Stony Browder. And that was, you know, he was getting some fame. And then, um, Tommy Mottola signed Kid Creole. Um uh, Tommy Mottola was, uh, Mariah Carey's husband, as a matter of fact, eventually. Mm-hmm. But, uh, he was working with Hall and Oates. And so all of that, those people were all in and out. And, um, so they asked, I was there and they needed a backup singer. And, um, you know, just to, to be with a coconut part, the, the background parts.
0: Sure. And there were two
1: other women that I was only five feet tall. So I had to stand on a phone book because I was with these two other tall black women. And it was real multi, um, cultural, very diverse. The music uh, was big. You know, there was horn section, uh, coated Andy Hernandez did the horn sections. He was incredible. He still plays out amazing. They call him Cody Mundy. And you can look him up. Yeah. He's amazing. And the, so we did the first album up there and then Peter bliss who's another, uh, a ranger producer, a record store owner, or actually he owned a recording studio. Um, he ended up working with them and they got signed with Island Records. And so oh, yeah. the first album was actually an island. And I'm actually on the cover and you can see me in the back corner. I mean, I have dark hair, but I am in the and. But I was not a dancer and they hired three girls who were uh, Swedish or, you know, that blonde, tall dancers to be the coconuts. So I didn't go out on the on the tour with them um and that plus there was just if i was not gonna do that that wasn't something that was gonna happen so um that's how i ended up doing the first album and it was very exciting and you know we were singing background on me and my friend annie were singing background on records and stuff and just trying to make a living you know we were just mostly making a living trying to eat and you know make, make records and stuff and um you never knew what was going to happen. We didn't know who was going to be famous. You know, I mean, even Hall and Oates at that time. You, we'd see them. At my friend Sarah's house. You know, they'd come over, and everybody just hung out. You know, and it was that was the way it was. And um, I worked at a at a ballet shop on Gay Street in the Village with Doria Reagan, who ended up marrying Ronnie Reagan, Ronald Reagan, President Ronald Reagan's son Ronnie, who's you know big NBC whatever guy. And uh. Doria and I, uh, I worked for her, and she ran a little shop where we sold ballet shoes to the Joffrey, and got to meet Bette Midler and stuff. <laughs> that was fun, you know. Great, it was a great time back then. And, um,
0: but cool. that was my
1: that was my twenties. It was it was an interesting time. So.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that certainly sounds. like that's that, that that's one of the most surreal sentences I've ever heard. That you worked with Ronald Reagan's son's wife and met Bette Midler while selling her ballet shoes on Gay Street in, <laughs> in- like everything yeah, she in by, most- then We
1: had lingerie. We sold lingerie also. So uh, she was buying lingerie for the Harlettes. That was her backup. Ba- you know, her backup singers were called the Harlettes at the time. And they were actually playing at Gertie's. They, oh, they were so, Bette Midler is, is a genius. I mean, she was uh. an incredible musician, fun to watch. And I was also playing with, with uh, Robbie Condor, who ended up marrying Carol King's daughter. And hey. his son, um, now Dylan Condor, was in Jesus Christ Superstar, that one that they did on TV. Uh, they're all what? musicians, just incredible players. And Robbie uh, toured with Carol and James uh, on that uh, tour that Carol uh, King and James Taylor did a while back. Uh, so, I mean, I got to play with, you know, everybody knew everybody. It wasn't, this wasn't weird. I mean, just everybody knew everybody. It was fun. That's, excellent.
0: <laughs> that, 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 that's class. I love that. I absolutely love that. That's wonderful. Um, so let, let's fast forward then a little bit, because I know that you, you were saying all through your 20s, it was all this whimsical and wonderful and just mental crap that you were having. But then it sort of, it, it, you sort of left the industry and you became a children's musician. So, what did that entail? What is a children's musician?
1: Well, what happened was uh, you know i I had little guys i i got I got married to my drummer, mm-hmm. and we had two kids, and um I would be playing the guitar, and my son would come up underneath, you know, and we'd be playing yes. and um i i was they were going into preschool, so I was helping out in the Montessori school and um i was uh I just come up with songs. I can't help it. I write songs no matter what so i wrote i was helping them learn to speak french and learn to speak spanish so i wrote a little song you know that went hello how are you we like to make new friends just a little you know just write little songs for the little guys and i ended up um finding another woman friend who was uh, working in preschools around the area in the dc area and she had a company called glee mania where she uh booked children's performances in schools So that's what I did was I, uh, put together a children's show. Um, I have, I still do it. Actually, I'll be at Gray Fox bluegrass festival, uh, in July this year. It's my 10th year there on the family stage. And I do a show called rainbow family where we sing in all different languages and different colors and it's lots of fun. Um, so I just wrote a bunch of songs for little guys. One of my biggest hits is called pineapple upside down cake. It's called my favorite food. And, um, for five-year-olds. I mean, amongst Only. the five-year-olds. And I have a, a, a CD out or an album. It's on Spotify and stuff
0: called yeah. Pineapples,
1: Butterflies and Dinosaurs. So that's what I did.
0: Amazing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's so, so good. Um, and then, so what did a, like a, a children's concert entail?
1: Well, it depends on the age of the of the kids. You have to really work through it. I worked with little teeny ones, like three year olds mm-hmm. four year olds and five year olds so okay. one thing is it can't be long. It has to be a, you know half hour is about all they can take. You have to that, work with, pushing it yeah, that's pushing it twenty minutes oftentimes I would do twenty minute shows in the classroom. I would go into monastery classrooms and not just but a lot of preschools. I did a lot of preschool shows. And what Mm -hmm. I would do is if you do interactive work with them, with some with little songs they might know like the Itsy Bitsy Spider or something like that. But I also wrote songs or I I would sing like in Korean. I I collected preschool songs from around the world because in Montessori, there'll be kids from all different countries coming in. Mm -hmm. So I figured if a three-year-old could learn it, I could learn it. So what I did was um, Mm -hmm. I asked the moms at the Montessori School of McLean, where I worked for many years, we had diplomats kids from all over the world. So I said, teach me a Russian song that's simple that a three-year-old can learn. So there's one that goes, um, which is, may there always be sunshine, may there always be blue skies. And so we would, I would do it in English and in Russian. And then I learned one in Korean and I learned one in Chinese and I learned one a Sp- couple in Spanish, French. Mm-hmm. So I collected them. And um, so that's the kind of stuff I would do for the little guys. And you're interactive. You have them up jumping and moving and all that sort of stuff. And mainly you just work with them at their level. That's what's important when you're working with small children is recognizing that they love a three-year-old loves a song that just goes. Pie pie pumpkin pie, put it in a pie pan. They like the repetition of the peas. They, yeah. They're listening for different things that an older person's listening for. So learning how to work with little guys. And um Montessori is wonderful for that. They're very good. But I yeah. did it in preschools around all over the DC area and um still and you know, I still love working with little ones. It's a lot of fun. So I did that while the kids were little. And so about 15 years, um, i that was how I, I made money. My ex-husband um, did well, thank God. So I was the tax write-off. You know, I would maybe make $10,000 a year performing yeah, yeah. in schools around, and that would be my income. And we would write it off because we had a recording studio in the house. We, yeah. we built our own recording studio. So, of yeah.
0: course, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a right really handy way to make money as a musician during the week. Cause yeah. you you know yourself, most most musicians, uh, it on Monday to Thursday. Well, Mon well Monday to Thursday we're kind of unless you do something like what I do and you teach or well nowadays, I suppose you could you could podcast, you could YouTube. But if you don't do anything like that and you just want to play, you're all but obsolete until Friday, Saturday night, Sunday night. You know what I mean? So doing that sort of stuff um, during the week, extra ten grand a year, that's all right. That's not bad well, at maybe- all.
1: Yeah, it was. And also I had stopped drinking. I told you that earlier, you know, I've gotten sober and I'd also quit smoking when I had my son. That was, he's 32 now. So 32 years ago, I quit smoking. So all of a sudden I had some more range in my voice because that happens Mm. when you quit. And Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to tell you that a five-year-old doesn't care if you're on pitch. They just want (laughs) you to be honest and happy and do the right thing. So I was able, I, I give all the little guys credit for me getting my voice getting better because my voice is yeah. better than it was when I was younger because they let me practice. They let me be, you know, try the higher notes because they don't care. They, you know, they like it so long as you're, you're honest and, and direct and give them good, good feedback. They, they don't care. So I, nah. I was able to develop a vocal techniques and vocal um, experiences that helped me because uh, so, doing a show at nine in the morning is very different than doing a show at, nine oh, at yeah. night.
0: Oh yeah. Big time. Very, I remember. Yeah. Well,
1: right. So I, I did, did nine o'clock morning shows for, for a number of years. And in fact, when I got back in the music business as a, as an elder person, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis right now is saying that do matinees people, you know, you too, do <laughs> I can't matinees. That. We're home. you know, she's all over yeah. that. Because it's it's hard to stay up late for me now, so I try to do shows that are earlier if I can and be done by ten o'clock if at all possible. I don't do bars anymore. I used to play bars, you know, mm. when I was, you know, I played four se- and I four sets. Now I will do four sets, but only at a winery in the afternoon. And even then, yeah. I usually have somebody with me and take a lot of breaks. So that's a long yeah. time to play. So I yeah. do wineries. I perform at those. Do that too. So
0: yeah you yeah no i you, you you're right four sets is uh we, we we tend to do two sets here in this 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 part of the world two or three sets sort of over three hours um but yeah four sets is is that is it's too
1: much i mean i i and i won't do it I, I i don't play bars anymore anyway i mean i will occasionally do a concert at a bar you know that kind of thing but i don't um I do concerts, house concerts mostly. That's um, a few festivals. That's the kind of stuff when I'm playing out. I'll do a festival, a house concert, um, and a winery. Those are the three places that I mostly play. So,
0: Winery sounds like a lovely place to play. We don't have those here. We don't have the weather for, for, for wine.
1: Yeah. Well, wineries are lovely because people do, they are drinking, but they're not, it's not like a a brewery. It's not like, um, Matt
0: Malloy's. (laughs) uh,
1: Matt Malloy's, they listen. I loved it there. I played there and it was so fun. And they, everybody listened. They just loved the music. It was really fun. Americans aren't quite as polite. So, um, (laughs) But at the winery, it's what I do there is that I recognize that I am background music, basically. They're not there to hear me. They're there to do something else. So that's where I do all the songs that I never get to play anywhere else. Mm-hmm. I do covers. I don't play a lot of original material. I just have fun playing stuff from the 60s and 70s that I know that, you know, from for me, that, you know, I know... You know, I know all yeah. those songs by heart. So people haven't heard them in a long time, and I'll do like "It's a Heartache," or I'll do a, a Rolling Stone song in a bluegrass style, or you know, things like that. And yeah. people enjoy it. And but yeah. I don't have um, I don't have to put on a performance in the same way that I do when it's a concert.
0: Yeah, you're you're not harsh by the end of it. Absolutely yeah. clutching that clutching at your chest, being like, oh god, I'm knackered. Yeah, and no, I I I I I know what you mean. I love those gigs. I love those gigs where, where, like like you say, you can just go and you can just enjoy it. You can just have fun. You can play what you want. Nobody cares. Nobody cares what they're playing. They're there to drink the wine and just be all whiny, and you're yeah. there kind of to just just to have fun, and uh, it's it's wonderful. So you came out of um, well, you're still doing the the children. You're still doing like the children's um, musician thing. You should look up um, Miss Rachel. If you if you've not heard of Miss Miss Rachel, my, my daughter she's going to be one at the end of the month, and she cannot get enough of Miss Rachel. Miss Rachel's on YouTube, and she does she plays ukulele and she just sings bedtime songs and teaches you how to brush your teeth and all that kind of stuff. And <laughs> it's 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 lovely. She she used to start a YouTube uh, channel, call yourself Miss Brooksy. <laughs> and uh, there you go. That 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 can be that can be the next the next step in your career. Well, but anyways, actually, maybe, oh,
1: but, well actually. No. And I'm going to tell you why, because I did that with my kids. And that Uh was when I did my children's thing. And I could, you can't nurse and rock at the same time. And I'm going to tell you that now that I'm 70 years old, I want to rock. I don't want to be (laughs) with the children anymore. And I know that that sounds cold, but the truth is I love doing a little bit of it. And I do have an album out, Pineapples, Butterflies, and Dinosaurs, that kids can yes. listen to. But when I got divorced, that was when I wanted to go back in the music business and do grown-up music with grown-up songs for grown-up people. And that's what I do today is my folk music is – it's generational. obviously. I don't swear a lot. I'm not real good at it. I, I'm Actually, I'm real good at it in talking, but I'm not good at it on songwriting. I, I think it's lazy, it, you know, it's to me yeah. – it's lazy songwriting. Uh, it can work if it's, yeah. you know, it can work. I'm okay with people, you know, swearing, but I just, it's not, I think it would sound funny in a song that I wrote. I don't know. Yeah. I just haven't been able to do it. Yeah. So You're not, you're not,
0: you're not writing songs for like NWA or Slayer or anything like that. No, like, so you do not. Yeah. So speaking, speaking of songwriting, what's the story with your new album? Tell us about that
1: okay this most recent album which is called stops time um i uh it came out um 2021 november 2021 and um i wrote most of the songs a number of the songs over COVID. Uh, you know i was up in the mountains my cousin has a mountain house and it's isolated and that's where we stayed we were little old ladies kind of hiding out staying out of our harm's way and we made it through safely thank god yeah but i you know i didn't have anything else to do so i was writing and i ended up writing a song about for my friend which i mentioned earlier david goodman who's a, a photographer and yeah. um and the line that came to me was the man with the camera stops time and it just was a, and i just thought it was really kind of a cool lyric and then i started mm. to think about how he has photographs of us when we were in college you know in black and white we were all in the theater and you know the theater and so i ended up doing a video using old photos from that period, just in black and white. And that was the video. And the song is, you know, I took the photographs of all my friends, you know, cherish memories, none of our sins. We all look beautiful, even though yeah. we didn't know it then. And you know, that's yeah. the thing is when you're young, you think you're ugly. And when you look back, you're like, Oh my God, I was so good looking. You don't realize <laughs> how youth is just beautiful. So, yeah, yeah. um, I did this album and I got a Bruce Brown. He played for Charlie Daniels for 30 years. Um, you know who yeah. Charlie Daniels is, right? I do
0: have one down to Georgia.
1: Yeah. yeah. And he, um, Bruce Brown and is a friend of, of my engineer and, um, Gary Gordon who I work with. And, um, he played uh, the lead guitars and the mandolins and stuff on, you know, some of the extra instrumentation on the record, which was very cool. Also Ross sermons. He's a, he's a a New Zealand artist. And he, we sent him the tracks and he played bass for me. And um, yeah, it's, it's very, very cool. Um, And I, I went, I go out to Gary's studio in, um, right. It's outside of Nashville. It's not in Nashville. His son is, is uh, Ian Gordon. who's a big Nashville producer owns track eight. Um, does a lot of film, and television, and also. Um, but anyway, Gary and his wife R- Roberta were the Gordons. They were, and they did a lot of folk. So they they know how to cut a folk record. They know how to mix a folk record. They know how to make the voice sound warm. Yeah. yeah. Folk, you don't have effects on on your vocals. They have to, and even if you miss a note, he's got a guy who can fix it so you can't tell. Whereas, yeah, you know, if if you're doing um, pop. They want the effect on the vocal, but I, you know, I want no effect. so uh, I, I made this record and I did a cover. I actually I did two covers. I did Early Morning Rain by Gordon Lightfoot, which is he's one of the reasons I started writing in the first place because I love Gordon. And then uh, um, I did I'm a believer by Neil Diamond, which is that oh, one you know it was in Shrek, but also it was yeah the monkeys did it a million years ago and yeah i yeah. did a sweet sweet cover of it um with me playing it. very sweet because if you think about the song and this is talking songwriting but um i'm a believer you know it goes um uh what then i saw your face now i'm a believer it's almost a gospel song and you don't even think about it no no would have yeah very interesting so that those are all of my new album and then um I wrote a song called thinking about fame because that it just came to me. I was thinking about it and what it really means, you know, and why is it it was important to me when I was young, I wanted fame. I wanted to be on the cover of people magazine back then we had magazines and I wanted to be, now what is that? But, you know, and then the chorus I wrote was maybe I wasn't hungry enough. Maybe I am misunderstood. Maybe I wasn't mm-hmm. greedy enough. Maybe I'm not that good. It's hard to know mm. now. You know, you mm. don't know why. I mean, listen to the record. You're gonna like it. Um, and well, everybody, listen to the record. <laughs> it's on Spotify. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> yeah. we'll make sure that that's linked in the in the description. Now, that that that's sounds awesome. all all lovely. Just when you were saying about I'm a believer, there. I never knew that was by Neil Diamond. That just shows yeah. like that. That just shows like I'm I'm 30. I was born in 1992. That was way, way, way before even the monkeys one was way, way before my time. But um yeah, exactly. I, well,
1: and y'all we it knew it from Shrek. From Shrek. Shrek. Know yeah, from Shrek.
0: I, I knew it from Shrek.
1: Yeah. I was yeah. like
0: nine when Shrek came out. Of course yeah, I knew it from exactly, Shrek. Exactly,
1: exactly. But it's it's an old song and it's beautiful and it can be done. And that's the other thing about songwriting, in my opinion. I've written, yeah. I have a catalog, and you know, I have a number of songs, and I'm I'm an ASCAP writer, by the way. Um, American Society of Composers, authors, and publishers. Some people are BMI, some people are CSEC. You know, there's different Mm -hmm. organizations to collect royalties. I do get royalties, not a lot, because streaming, you know, I'm not a big famous artist, um, but I do get some. And um, Mm -hmm. so that's kind of how all that works. But um, anyway...
0: Yeah, That's what I've
1: done, you know, what I've been doing. <laughs>
0: Very good. And I know then you're coming over this way um, in this actually soon enough, next month, I believe, with uh, Nina Gibson. What's the crack there?
1: Yeah, what's going on is Nina Gibson and I have been teaching a course in intuition for over 25 years. We mm-hmm. taught at the Chautauqua Institute for 10 years, and we offer uh, an opportunity for you to look at, explore, and develop your intuitive side, you know, it's, we call it the flip side of intellect. It's part of your intellect, but it's the more grounded, centered, looking inward, um, you know, listening to your guidance kind of a way. And it's the reason that I believe that I have had three top 10 albums is I was able to follow my intuition, get out of my own way, get the help I needed to have my albums be heard and be able to really listen to other people and take advice and do as they asked me to do rather than fight and scratch and go, I don't want to. I did what I was asked to do and it worked out real well for me. So yes. Nina and I are doing, we're calling it our Intuitive Hearts Tour. And it's only a few shows. We'll be at uh, the Brighton Fringe Festival. We'll be there the 26th doing a workshop called Intuition and Music. And then on the 27th, and this is at the Unitarian Church, we're going to mm-hmm. be doing a concert. Then we go up to the Vinyl Cafe in York, which will be fun. It's a coffee house. That will be fun. Probably. Then up to Sheffield, which is June. It's, uh, oh, hold on. I have it written down. Uh, June 2nd in York. And then June 3rd in Sheffield. And then up to Glasgow on the 4th for a concert. And then we'll Very be good. Home. So it'll be Very a short good. little tour. But we want to introduce our Intuitive Hearts tour, which is... Here's our music. Nina does more um, spiritual music, uh, sort of um, new age kind of spiritual stuff, and I do my folk uh, work. But we want to tell everyone that you can find you know, your spiritual self, you can find your intuitive heart, and you can have a wonderful life and do interesting things as an elder and continue to live life and be excited and be um, fabulous. <laughs>
0: Well, oh, that, that is absolutely fabulous to hear. I love that. So, folks, mark your calendars. That is, if you're listening to this on the day that it comes out, which is the fifth of May, twenty twenty-three. Mark your calendars. Brooksy is coming over this side of the world, which is uh, I'm in Scotland, so over that end of the world. It's uh, coming here in three weeks' time. Get your calendars out, stick a little a little mark in it, and make sure you get along to see Brooksy at some point if you can. Uh, Brooks, it sounds like you've got plenty to keep you busy. Um, and even uh, at, at this stage in your life, there's no stopping you. There's no sl- slowing you down at all. You're ready to rock as as or you want to rock, as Dee Snyder would say.
1: <laughs> well, I'm also working on a screenplay. We just sold a movie, uh, my little company called Wildcard Development, uh, about the life of Bill Monroe, the father of bluegrass. And a Canadian company is going to be... Uh, putting that in production, it looks like, in September. But the Mm. new uh, film that I'm working on, which is I'm doing a screenplay with my best friend, Catherine Lisk, in New York. She was in Harry Potter in the San Francisco cast. Um, She uh, and I are working on a... Uh, superhero script which is going to be very Ooh. exciting. So, uh, look forward to doing some of that. I just can't sit still, you know. That's the deal. Oh, why
0: would you? When you when you've got all this talent oozing out of you, why would you sit you, you sit still? It's selfish of you to keep it all to yourself. The rest of us need to have some of it. <laughs> so, yeah, no, know that, that that's brilliant. Well, maybe we'll, we'll we'll check in with you in a year's time and see how how, how those films are, are coming along. You kept that very very quiet in your your uh, your bio that you'd sold a film.
1: Well, it's a fairly recent thing. I've been working on it for three years, but uh, my the, the work that I do in film is behind the scenes. It's more executive uh-huh. producer sort of stuff. So I try not to um, put that out there too much. But it was very exciting to actually uh, be part of a of a film uh, that is actually going to get made. So these things take time and they take a lot of yeah. work. I'm also a music supervisor on a documentary called uh, Constructing Whiteness, which is with a guy named Art Jones, who just did a documentary on Muhammad Ali. So there's a lot of projects coming up. Um, but mostly, I just want to play music and talk to people like you. And I will help others who need help, especially women. If you're looking for support, help, please call. I'm always available. And um, you know that's one of my favorite jobs, is to be a consultant and help individuals realize their dreams.
0: Excellent stuff. Well, on that point, before we jump into a quick fire round, why don't you tell people where they can actually find you and where they can get in touch with you?
1: Okay. Well, I'm brooksywells.com, and I'm the only Brooksy Wells in America. So if you Google me, you actually get me, which is kind of cool. That is very
0: cool. (laughs) I
1: know. I know. And I'm on Spotify, and I'm on um, Instagram. Again, Brooksywells And Facebook is where I hang out because I'm older you know, old people hang out on Facebook. And right. so I have um, a group called Everybody Knows Brooksy. So if you want to come and join us, we'll be taking you guys along on our tour with us, uh, you know, doing live, live feed and all that sort of stuff. So join us. And um, we look forward to meeting more and more of you guys over there. Because Nina and I, Nina is a huge fan of Ireland, as am I. I played there before. Thank you, David Moore and uh, Matt Malloy's for having me in the past and i'll be yeah. in ireland hopefully next year so exciting
0: excellent uh well, you, you may let me know when uh may let, let me know when you're going to be in ireland and i'm going to see if i can if i can jump on over to see you in ireland we'll get uh we'll we'll, we'll get an old sing song and matt malloy's over in westport um cool Well, anyway, let's jump into a quick fire round and we'll we'll we'll, we'll let you get back to your your ever-growing to-do list of uh, film writing, screenplays, albums, intuition, all that kind of great stuff. So as, as I always say, the quick fire round is just, it's kind of like icebreakers, but um, at the end. So um, yeah, let we'll start off with this one. What is your favorite animal? Dog. Dog, yep. Good, solid answer. Everyone loves a dog. If you don't like dogs, there's something wrong with you. Go get yourself seen, Tim. Um What is your favorite memory? from childhood?
1: Oh, I lived in a mansion as a kid. And of course you did.
0: Of course I did. Fantastic.
1: Unitarian church was an old estate and they, we had a theater company on the property. And I was, I woke up in sixth grade when I moved there and it was like waking up in fairyland. It was this beautiful estate. And I, I go outside and a woman goes, come here. I'm like, what? She goes, we're making glass scales for the dragon. "Hmm?" And she said they were they were doing a production of Turandot, which apparently has a dragon in it. And they were making glass scales for the dragon. And I thought I had woken up in fairyland. And sure enough, I was able to be a part of the theater company as as a kid for many years. And that's one of the reasons I went into theater. So that's a wonderful memory. The Mount Vernon Unitarian Universalist Church in Alexandria, Virginia. Look it up. It's a beautiful estate and I lived there as a child.
0: Very good. Very, very... I think I stayed in Alexandria. Is Alexandria very close to DC?
1: It is. It is.
0: Yeah, I, I did stay in Alexandria when I was over that way. Yeah, very, very good. Nice part of the world. Um, that is one of the most surreal things I've ever heard, that you woke up in a mansion to make scales for a dragon. That's fantastic. <laughs> that, that's the best sentence I've ever said in my life. Um... Let's do, do. a couple more here, right? So, if you could live in any era, bear in mind now that you you've you've been through the sixties and seventies and eighties and all that good stuff. But if you could live in any era, which one would you choose?
1: Absolutely, right now.
0: Oh, right now, really?
1: Absolutely, right now, because with what's happening with artificial intelligence, and I'm thinking about Pete Rust right at the moment.
0: No man, do Pete Rust from you, Fran you and the
1: You him always had it, and I believe that the evolutionary process is ex. I believe that the evolutionary process is moving faster and faster and things are changing so quickly. And I also with modern medicine, I'm getting this opportunity to have a late life and be healthy, which would not be true in an earlier age. So I wouldn't even be here. So I can't think of any other time I'd rather be in.
0: Oh, well that's lovely. That's lovely. The last guy I asked, he said the nineties, and I was like, why? <laughs> Everything was wet and dull. <laughs> and 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 like like, yeah, great stuff. No, that that's lovely. That's really nice to know that you you you've been through the sixties and seventies and eighties and all these like golden eras that people always say were just better, but like you're saying it's not. So it's nice to know that I'm kind of in the right in the you right are. time as well.
1: You are. You're at the you're at the very beginning of something very, very dramatic. Evolving with our planet. So it's yes. scary and it's hard, and my heart goes out to you, but I am very envious of the many years ahead that you have.
0: Oh, well, thanks very much. Well, I, I think, I, I think, thanks. Um, yeah, that, that, that's, that's, that is a lovely note. I tell you what, let, let's end on a, a not so lovely note. And this is a question I've been asking the past few guests because I just find it hilarious. What celebrity would you like to fight? Any celebrity? Share. You, can, you, you can, who? Cher. Why Cher?
1: Well Cher is amazing I mean she and, and she doesn't change I mean she's the same She looks no. like the same way She did 50, 60 years ago She's unbelievable And it would just give me An opportunity To put my hands on her I think she's amazing
0: <laughs> That's great You should That's tell great, her I so. said that <laughs> No no don't worry no, Nobody listens to this It's all good <laughs> I tell you what if, if, if by some miracle Cher is listening to this Cher Give us a shout I'll get you on the podcast and you can. Brooksy's called you out. Brooksy's called you out. So come on, have your say, and we'll we'll make it happen. We'll absolutely make it happen. Listen, Brooksy, you're an absolute delight to talk to. Thank you so much for coming on today. And uh, best of luck with Everton coming up. And I'll hopefully catch up with you in the future. All right. All right.
1: Thank you so much
0: for having me. It was a wonderful time. And you're adorable. That was the music career show. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review and tell your friends about the Music Career Show.